Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder. Joining me this morning as we record in the Oklahoman studios is my co-host Justin Wingeter. Justin, how's it going? Good. It's a little earlier than we uh, usually record. We're at about 8.30 this morning. Well, it's early because it's also a week earlier than we normally well, record. that too. Well, so listeners who have listened to our previous episode will notice uh, the conversation with uh, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat that was recorded a week earlier. I say that because since we had that conversation with him, some, you know, the, the Senate announced their legislative agenda, and so some of those details aren't in that conversation. This week, we're recording again a week early. Normally, we record on the day that we that we post, but uh, uh, recording a week early this week. And I say that uh, ought to say that when you listen to this, there will have been the state of the state. The, the The legislature will have officially kicked off its session, so we're not talking about that in this episode. But I think there probably will be a, uh, a special podcast either on Monday or sometime around that to kind of debrief what the legislature is doing. Um, so not talking about the state today, but we are talking about city politics. And that brings us to our guest here in this uh, first segment, and that is Councilman Ed Shadid. Councilman, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, Councilman, so 2011, you were first elected to the city council, uh, two terms, eight years in office. It was a run for mayor during that time. Um, you are retiring from the council, so it's an open seat. There's an election, and we can talk about that here in a minute. Um, but you were you were stepping a- away, and you know when I when I think about your time on council, I think of you. At, you know, every council member brings their own unique perspective and their voice. Um, but during your eight years, you maybe had the most unique voice, and I don't mean that. I mean, I mean that as kind of a compliment um, in terms of just the perspective you brought. Um, there were probably a lot of uh, you probably the the lone vote on a lot of issues at times, um, and not always. Um, but but so let me say that first off, is that a, do you think that's a, a fair assessment? And then if, if so, you know what what did you feel like your voice was? What was your role on, on this council? Because um, you, you put a spotlight on a lot of issues that. Um, if it wasn't for you, maybe there wasn't wasn't going to be a spotlight on it. Well, I, I guess that's the most important thing, you know, both for me and for anybody who wants to to be a public servant and who wants to run for office and, and be an elected official is number one to ask questions. You know, just don't assume that everything is um, is correct or that you know th- things opinions that people are giving you, whether it's legal or political, are necessarily even if there's ingrained over time. You know, we have to challenge all those assumptions, um, and that's how that's how we make progress. I think that Oklahoma City, um, you know, we're kind of known for for being polite, if you will, mm-hmm. but it's it's also kind of our passivity. Mm-hmm. I think as a uh, the uh, Sam Anderson kind of wrote about this yeah. in the New York Times is that there's it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it's very pleasant in our day-to-day interactions with each other, but it, maybe the populace is not questioning, you know, as much as they should. And certainly I feel like our elected officials are not. I don't think that – I haven't found the, the city council to be particularly intellectually curious, if you will. Right, Unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we're, we're insulated. I don't – I think a lot, of, a lot of what I learned was going out into the country, going to national meetings, trying to learn what other cities are doing. And I think there's a danger in constantly hiring within, hiring everybody within Oklahoma City, um, you know, maybe – not reaching out, not having department heads, not having elected officials and city councilors reach out to other cities and look what's happening in other cities to try and learn from from their experiences. And a lot of, I'll give you an example is the streetcar, mm-hmm. right? 
if you're if other cities have gone ahead of you, then you need to go out and kind of learn what was there from their successes and their failures. I think I, to this day, I don't think that the council and a lot of uh, have I don't think people understand the primary purpose of the streetcar, which is not necessarily a public transit vehicle, but an, a real estate economic development tool. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these cities coming together and they're lobbying Washington and they all understand this and they're speaking at, at meetings like Railvolution, which moves to a different city each each year, that a streetcar is primarily a, a real estate development tool. So like in Portland, you would put the streetcar in an area where there is no development and you would partner with a large developer and the city would get something that otherwise couldn't happen. So you'd get this developer to, to have a large affordable housing component, right? And then the deal and then you'd bring the streetcar there and then mm-hmm. you all partner together. And that's its primary purpose in Portland. And the, the director of the Portland streetcar will who came and consulted here will advocate for that. I, but we had we had meetings in the beginning where they were saying, well we should you know, we should delay the streetcar because it doesn't have the economic impact. I think there was a, a, a figure of like $17,000 was was the expected economic impact of the streetcar. It was just preposterous. And so I give that as just one example of, I just, I don't feel like we're we're looking at what peer cities are doing. I think we're, we're insulated and, and we don't, we don't ask questions uh, as much. And I think that's, if, I consider that my my most uh, important duty. When you're the only one asking the question, sometimes it can come across like you're... But, but Ben, you're it only cr- takes one. Yeah. And that's no, what's no, so yeah, important yeah. is that, yes, there's a super majority mm-hmm. on the council. I don't, I don't feel like the council represents the demographics or the political orientation of the city. You know, it's overwhelmingly Caucasian. It's overwhelmingly male. It's overwhelmingly Republican. And all that's fine if it's, you know, mm. sur- but not when it's like eight out of nine people. Seven out of nine people, and that, so you have a certain political bent. You have a certain allegiance uh, to certain um, socioeconomic and, and political forces in the city. Um, but it only takes one person to ask those questions, and then the question gets out there. It doesn't matter if it's only one out of nine people or two out of nine people. It doesn't matter if you're on the short end of eight to one votes over and over and over. If you can get the question out there and get the facts out there, you, you've done a great service. So, I would, so those who may be intimidated that, oh, I don't want to run for council, I just, everybody, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on the short end of, you know, you, you can do a great service by just asking the questions and getting it out there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that one of, I'll give you one example. When I, when I first got on there, there was a, a real estate deal with the Vitagraph property. And the city was doing, we allowed someone to, what we knew was a preposterous real estate value for the, for the transaction. We knew that they were going to, it was basically tax fraud mm-hmm. is basically what it was. But I, I, I asked the questions and brought that out, right? To, to me, it was like when I first got on there, that was just accepted. It was just, well, that's his, you know, if he wants to claim a, a wildly embellished value for this land on his taxes, that's his business. But by bringing it out there, and then I, I ended up, you know, having an alliance with Pete White. He was a great mentor and an ally on a lot of these things. We never saw things like that again. And I, I think that, to me, it might be that asking questions, the biggest impact might be the things that you don't ever see because mm-hmm. people know that there's uh, if this real estate deal. If this is if it's too questionable, you know, it might get called out at council. Whereas, I'm not sure what of before. Yeah. 
You know, when I think about your your time in office, and I, I think about some of the the issues you advocated for, I see a lot. I see a lot of those issues now. Um, you know, more more mainstream, and right. you know whether you know some may say give you credit for it, or some may say you're just kind of speaking for that community that already existed. But um, you know, questioning the role of maps and and whether or not it should, there should be more investment in the neighborhoods. I mean, that was kind of a I mean, you go back several years ago, and that was kind of a far-fetched idea for some to say, well, these, this is for big projects downtown. What do you mean right. do something outside? Now, that's a major part of the conversation right now. I think about, you know, when you ran for mayor, one of one of your big issues, if I'm remembering right, was, you know, diversity in these boards and commissions. Right. Um, you know, we reported last year in the numbers, and you were talking about this four years ago. You that did they, a great job, uh, yeah. That they, they don't reflect the city. Well, they now don't. that's a con- that's a constant conversation amongst with, with our new mayor and, and others. And so right. um, did have things do you feel like a lot of the things that you were trying to bring attention to um, are they more kind of in the mainstream conversation you know eight years you know later after you were elected absolutely I mean I feel like you know again I was the the most important thing for me was to go out to national conferences like the Congress for New Urbanism and and kind of see what was going on in other cities and it became very clear that things like walkability and protecting the pedestrian and, and public transit and all these things were, were other cities were ahead of us. So I think that's, you know, that's where I learned it. I think that, yes, it was when I first got on the council, it, we weren't having uh, the same conversations, but Oklahoma City is, is having a similar, a parallel track to a lot of urban centers uh, throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And we can learn from other cities. Um, but yeah, a lot of these things came, came into more mainstream now. I do. Do I think that you know we've we've talked about it and and you did a great job in that article. We still don't have the diversity on the council. We still don't have the diversity on boards and commissions. But it is people are at least aware, and that's the first step. Um, we're aware that this is a difficult city to for uh, pedestrians. We're aware. I think one of one of the most tragic and and. I guess if I have the most sadness about anything is that is that we do have a city that's 620 square miles where you you really are automobile dependent or a lot of the populace is, but you have 23% of the people in Oklahoma City that are living below the poverty line, right? And it takes $10,000 to own, operate, maintain a vehicle. It's outside the the financial abilities of a lot of people. 23%, same name, same number as Michael Jordan and LeBron James, right? 23% of the people living in Oklahoma City live below the poverty line. So how is it that we were the largest city in America until basically right now without any public transit on Sundays mm-hmm. or in the evenings? It's really, it, it, I have a lot of sadness about that. I mean, it's one of the most sadistic things I think I've, I've been a part of is that we, we didn't provide transit on Sundays. I mean, it's just incredible. The largest city in America not to do that. And, and honestly, I'm not sure if we didn't have the streetcar and there weren't concerns about uh, like a Title VI violation that you're treating one socioeconomic class and, and general race, which is wealthy Caucasians mm-hmm. riding the streetcar, differently than, you know, minority populations that are many of which are impoverished. You're treating them differently on the bus. <clears throat> That's a you're asking for a Title VI lawsuit that happened in Los Angeles, that happened in Atlanta, and they got to do their transit planning in the courts for a decade. W- this is probably the largest discrepancy of level of service between different modes of public transit in the country, mm-hmm. between what we do for our bus, 
where we have people sitting on 40-year-old two-by-fours that are, you know, with no protection from the Oklahoma City cold or, or winters or heat in the summer. Um, and you just have them sitting out there, whereas in our streetcar we have beautiful, you know, stops protecting them from the elements and 15-minute frequencies as opposed to coming every hour, which we've done most of my time here. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wildly discrepant level of service. Um, and those kind of things are just inching into into the public discourse and maybe the, the city councils and maybe the thought of like a Title VI challenge maybe is, is pushing people along. But but yeah, these, these are things that, that Pete White and I were talking about eight years. And now when you when you finally have the streetcar and it's like, well, well, of course we have to have Sunday service for the mm-hmm. streetcar. And then, and then you, you hopefully people take the next step and think, well, if we have to have Sunday service for the streetcar, I mean, why wouldn't we have buses on Sunday? I mean, there's a lot of people that are completely dependent on the bus to get food or to get to a mm-hmm. job or get to, you know, to to survive. And um, and so hopefully that those things come in more into the mainstream and more into the public discourse and the city council's discourse. What would you like to see next on transit? On transit? Yeah. Well, I think you've got to have a dedicated funding source. I mean, I think any city that has a one-eighth cent dedicated funding source for the zoo and a, a you know, huge, huge dedicated funding source for for tourism and, and the hotel motel tax all goes to the state fairgrounds or the Chamber of Commerce for, for tourism. I mean, we have these dedicated funding sources for all these things, but we don't have it for transit. Uh, and so... You know, I'd I'd like to see equilibration of level of service between the streetcar and the and the buses. If it's important to make it that this the traffic signals change as the streetcar is coming, signal prioritization to make it you know make there be a preference for public transit. Do the same thing for buses. You know, if it's important to protect streetcar riders from the from the elements and the harsh Oklahoma City weather, do the same thing for buses. Make it, if there's apps that tell you in real time when the streetcar is arriving, do the same thing for the buses. I mean, just equilibrate level of service. That's, that's where we're so wildly an outlier compared to other urban centers in America. We just don't have this wildly discrepant level of service. So that, that's the, I think, equilibrate level of service, try and increase frequency, get a dedicated funding source uh, for transit. Is it fair to say you had expanded buses before you expanded the streetcar? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, don't, I still don't think that people understand the purpose of a streetcar. And we're talking about expanding streetcar, you know, in Maps 4 a few months from now. And I, I honestly don't think people understand it. It's a real estate development tool. It's not primarily a public transit vehicle. So if the Alliance for Economic Development or somebody had a large development they had a they had a partnership with a developer and they wanted to go to a certain area and they said look we can we can tackle your affordable housing program that that if you look out to urban centers throughout America you know is coming when you put this massive kind of investment in one small area downtown you know you're going to get gentrification you know you're going to get affordable housing pro- problems because all these other places have the the revitalization of downtown that's not a Oklahoma, it's not unique to Oklahoma City right it's happening in urban yeah. centers throughout America mm-hmm. and so you can learn where that downtown revitalization is even more robust and a few years ahead of us, you can learn from other cities and you can try and adapt. 
Well, the streetcar is primarily a real estate development tool. And so you can you can maybe tackle some of that gentrification or tackle some of those affordable housing issues. But you don't just, you know, blindly do it without partnerships, without a plan of how you're going to develop the area, you know, and, and have it be primarily a public transit vehicle. So if, if, the, if the concern is public transit, invest in public transit. And our, our bus system needs needs investment it needs attention and that's i think that's our highest priority right now yeah you know i i think uh i'm sure this is not unique i mean i know it's not unique to oklahoma city maybe it's highlighted again you referenced you know the new york times writer sam anderson in his book that came out last year and i thought you know one of the good things about the book that he put a spotlight on and others have is that you know oklahoma city and you know in the 90s you know it was such an a is in such a state that felt like it was so behind other cities that it, it just had to like it was check it wanted to check off the boxes you know we need that arena we need the new library the art museum all these things right um you know we want to be you know for lack of a better phrase cool and, and in and of itself i don't think there's anything wrong with that you want to be a vibrant you know a lively lively city um but it seems like it did kind of create this environment where to you know to to be critical of some of those elements was to be critical of, this, of the overall effort. Right. Um, I remember when you ran for mayor, and I won't say the individual, but someone told me, because um, I don't know that it was an on-the-record conversation, but you know, I asked him about your chances, and this was someone who was kind of in the, the, the chamber crowd. Um, I said, well, he'll get at least 30% of the vote because at least 30% of people are against everything. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, right. this idea that to question some of these things makes you against what we're trying to do. Right. Is that still the case today? And if and I don't know if it is quite as much because once, we, like we talked about earlier, you've this conversation has changed. The things you were talking about eight years ago that looked like made you an outlier are now kind of being embraced, maybe not as a whole, but by more people. How did the conversation change? How did you personally try to change it for yourself and not just become the member of the council who was against everything as some saw it to, you know, bring a credible voice to important issues that maybe have been neglected? I, I think you know. I think it was by by reaching out and seeing what was happening in other cities and kind of being okay with knowing that this is going to come here just because we're we're not that unique. I mean, this is happening in all urban centers. It's going to come to Oklahoma City eventually. Um, And so just being okay with that and just being okay with, you know, asking questions, knowing that this is coming. Um, Now, I I would still say that we've got this issue with maps where it kind of has its own you know, force and its own label. And it's like, if you if you question maps, if you want to try and make maps better, that somehow you're against progress and against, and we, we like to build things, right? We like to build, and, it, and it's nice to see like big projects and big capital projects. And, but I think what's, what's harder to see is that, and, and I would hope that people would, would realize this as we, as we enter a new maps discussion, is that there's a cost on the operations side. And it's not sexy to talk about operations. It's not, <laughs> you can't see it. You can't necessarily, it's so incremental and it's just, you can't you can't feel it all at once. Like when you see a new bar- park being built or a new convention yeah. center going up with, you know, so with the cranes and things. So, but there is a cost, you know, we, we we're the only state in America that doesn't allow cities to use property tax for its operations, right? So we're, we're an outlier there. 49 
states are over here and Oklahoma's by itself over here. So we're very, very dependent on sales tax for operations. So if you look at the major cities, the biggest cities in Oklahoma, Tulsa a lot, and you know, the our sales tax rate that we use for operations has been artificially low. It's been lower as a percentage than those other cities. And the reason is to be able to have room for a one cent sales tax for maps, right? Well, there's a cost to that. The cost is you don't have money to have Sunday bus service because your public transit department doesn't have enough money. Mm-hmm. You don't have money to, to maintain your parks. And so you've got studies showing mm, Oklahoma City's way behind other urban centers in maintaining and investing in its parks. You, you had issues with having enough police officers or having enough fire for years. You know, so, and those, so those kind of things are, are below the surface, and it's much, much harder in the conversation to explain that in 30 seconds. There's no sexy soundbite that, that you can use to explain that, but there's a cost to all of us of artificially keeping our sales tax low so that we can put sales tax into capital. Because remember, we have a vehicle to build things, and that's our property tax. We, we have bonds, right? So everything that's in MAPS convention center, downtown park, all these things, street. I mean, you could build that with your bonds. You don't need maps to do that. Whereas sales tax is, you have to have that for operations. That's all you have for operations. Uh, And so that's, I guess if there's something that I would hope that comes into the mainstream discourse is, you know, are, are we investing enough in maintaining and operating these things? One problem with MAPS 3 was that you built a lot of things and you had no plan whatsoever for how to pay for the operations. You put $130 million into a streetcar. Well, how are you going to pay for the $4 million a year to run it? We, don't, we didn't have a plan. You're going to build a $100 million downtown park. Well, how are you going to pay for the $3, 4000000 million a year to operate and maintain it? No plan. Right. So do you take money from neighborhood parks to from your park budget to now address this huge 70 acre park downtown? If you're going to if you're going to build big things, big capital investments, you've got to have a plan for how to pay for the operations and maintenance going forward, because three, four million dollars a year, that's 30, 40 million dollars a decade. And you've got to have a plan or you're going to be diverting from other neighborhood resources to pay for those projects. Yeah. Well, in, in the couple minutes we have left in this first segment, um, I want to ask you what's uh, what's the future like for you? I, mean, I know you've got a, a you know a medical practice and you know and a business and a family, but uh, what's uh, any any political future? Do you feel like moving forward? Or you know, I, I'm a I'm a big believer in the initiative petition process. I think it's just democracy at its most pure, its most beautiful. Um, and I'd like to see, explore, you know, how maybe that can be done at the local level, at the municipal level. To be involved in that process? Like, yes, be involved okay. in that process. Um, I think that a lot of things, you know, I, in my eight years, we've had a lot of issues where you'd have 30, 40, 50 people come to the council advocating for something uh, like urban chickens, or you could say <laughs> yeah. urban hens if yeah. that's easier mm-hmm. to digest, um, and nobody opposed and the council, you know, two, three times votes against it. You know, we talk about um, food deserts, and since I got here the whole eight years and years before, we've talked about trying to get a grocery store on the northeast side, and we can't get it done. But we deprive people of the right to have a food source in their backyard, which is being done in urban centers throughout America. Um, and people have asked for it in mass, but the council won't give it to them. And we have chickens throughout the city already, just people are violating the law. but. The 
the council won't give it to them. So let people, you know, petition their government. That is the, the Oklahoma Supreme Court considers that a sacred right. They use the word sacred. Um, let people petition and just have a vote of the people directly. Well, one other issue I'll just bring up mm-hmm. in our last. You cannot, you cannot pay the council and mayor, I believe, what we're currently paying. And I, uh, maybe you brought this up or the, the pay of public officials. And I think people were taken aback yeah. by what we pay the mayor. You can't pay the council $12,000, the mayor $24,000. That's if you're doing this right and you're spending 40 hours a week, that's like $6 an hour for the council, $12 for the mayor. You're asking for trouble corruption wise. It's a penny, penny wise, pound foolish, dollar foolish. Mm-hmm. It, you're asking for trouble. You're restricting the, the, the number of people who can serve on council. And, and I think that that, you know, this December, if you're going to have a citywide vote for maps, that would be the time to do initiative petitions. That would be a time if, if people get together and think, well, we'd like to have a vote of, of this, of the people. It, it would be this December. You, you need to have a citywide election. So if it's not this December, it might be two or three years before you could do it again. But people might think about that. You know, what what is it that you'd like to see come to a, a vote of the people directly? And these are the kind of things that I think uh, to raise the salary of the council would require a vote of the people. So I give that as an example of something we might think about. But we, we are... I do think that on my time in eight years, corruption has been a problem at, at council. I think the council desperately needs an ethics commission. Virtually every city, uh, large city our size, has an ethics commission where you have an independent third party that looks at charter violations or of the, the council and these boards of commissions you were referencing. In Oklahoma City, we have the council kind of policing itself. And I can tell you, it's not working. We, we have a corruption issue. We need a, an ethics commission. We need an independent third party. Um, you can't be asking the city attorney or the city auditor, you know, if your behavior is okay when those people owe you their job. So I give that as, as maybe a final example of something we might think about this year. Yeah. So uh, no longer an elective office. It sounds like you're going to still be busy in a lot of Definitely. Uh, when it comes to, to local issues and local politics. So, well, Councilman Shadid, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Uh, congrats on your career in the council and uh, good luck as you kind of go through the final a few months and uh, look forward to speaking to you again down the road. Thank you. Thank we're you gonna, both. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment for the second half of Political State. All right, welcome back to Political State from the Oklahoma. I'm Ben Felder, along with Justin Wingeter, our guest in the first half of the episode, or first segment of the episode, Councilman Ed Shadid, who is uh, entering the end of his second and final term on the city council. And uh, Justin, so said at the top of the episode, this we're recording this uh, final day of January. It's going to drop a week later. So by the time that our listeners are hearing this, they have probably already heard and had a chance to cope with the fact that you will, <laughs> you will no longer be um, you no longer be at the Oklahoma and more importantly you will no longer be um, on the political state <laughs> podcast. In fact today, January 31st, right? It's the 31st. Yes. Is your final day at the paper. It is, yeah. Um, I am moving on to the Denver Post uh, next month. It'll take a few weeks to travel and um, then, uh, yeah, start, start with the Post next month. Uh it's it's been a lot of fun really to be part of the show uh thank you i mean to all the readers to all the listeners to everyone who wrote to me who had a dialogue about politics or a dialogue about journalism a dialogue about the city and the state that they care 
so much about and our role as journalists in that and uh it's it's been a great privilege a great honor and a lot of fun um to talk politics oklahoma politics the last about two years yeah and it's hard to believe that it's only been two years i mean i think (laughs) it would be hard to find many i think reporters here or anywhere else that has crammed as much in in two years as you have and i mean obviously it's a big big election year last year that you had a chance to cover um you know i thought you brought a lot of great context to, to federal government issues, um, and, and not an easy beat because you you followed in the path of our, our former you know federal government reporter who was based in D.C. for a few decades, Chris yeah. Castile. Um, so not easy to follow a, you know a veteran like that. Chris is now our boss as the news <laughs> yeah, yeah. So not easy to have your boss be the person <laughs> who did your job and knows exactly how he'd like it to be. Um, but I know you've got a big fan in Chris and, and a big fan in, in many of us. And uh, I'm curious to you, at the end of the year, you know, we did kind of what were the biggest stories of the year. So I'm not, I'm not saying the most impactful stories per se, but what to you, what were some of your favorite stories that you had a chance to, to cover here? Um, there are several. Let me say, first of all, that I'm a big fan of Chris and um, uh, he's been very helpful. And uh, it, this is something you're seeing, just a little journalism note, is you have very few um, papers that have a D.C. bureau now. Yeah. So you have federal government reporters based in the city that they're covering. And that is um, that's something I've done in a couple of states and we'll do in one more in Colorado at least. And it's been a... It's been interesting, and I think it puts you there with the readers, though, a little yeah. more. You don't get caught in the D.C. Um, s- stuff, for lack of a better term. And uh, it's not to say you can't do really good reporting in D.C. Obviously, there are a lot of benefits to being there in the Capitol, but there are also some benefits to being here. Um, as far as my you know favorite stories or better stories, uh, there, were, there were some interesting ones. As you point out, it was uh, an interesting election year, and— you know, I, I was just talking the other day with uh, a Kendra Horn um, aide or former campaign aide about uh, a coffee we had at uh, Clarity Coffee, uh, you know, in the summer of 17, when he just swore over and over again that he had a candidate who could beat Steve Russell in uh, 2018. And I was, I think, rightly skeptical at the time. And uh, I was skeptical up until about you know, five minutes before the last returns came in on election night. Uh, and I, again, I think I had right to be, but he was very adamant that he had this candidate, uh, Kendra Horn, who could do something a Democrat had not done in 44 years in, here in Oklahoma City in the 5th District. And she did, of course. And watching that rise, watching a candidate sort of come into existence and then uh, morph with the uh, the constituency or the, the electorate uh, around her and how that shaped her, how she shaped the dialogue. And of course, that election was uh, a bit of a wild one the last few weeks or the last few weeks before the election. And mm-hmm. um, so that was that was an interesting one. There were um, any number of interesting stories involving the delegation. Um, wrote once about the Mueller investigation, uh, well, a few times, mostly getting reactions to things. But in one case, actually digging through the documents dug up uh, by the Mueller investigation into um, uh, Paul Manafort and actually uh, an effort to um, kill an, uh, a resolution that Jim Inhofe had put together um, last decade, I believe it was. And that was really interesting to watch uh, and to dig through those documents. And, and I don't know if that story um, got the attention that I, I kind of thought it was going to at the time, but it was a, a rather interesting one. Uh, certainly anytime you have a chance to dig through, you know, this international intrigue uh, and which and this 
the Senate intrigue into what was a basically just a harmless um, resolution that didn't have any real effect. It was just a sense of the Senate that they were disapproving of the the current dictator. But the dictator of of Ukraine at the time had a real effort to kill it, and it. Uh, he enlisted Paul Manafort and a number of others who we now know a great deal about their um, backdoor dealing. So that that was an interesting one. That one stands out. Um, any number of investigative pieces, uh, environmental reporting, yep. which was a something I lot on that. <laughs> that was something I'd not done and didn't really plan to do. It was just you know, it, it, there were a lot of unfortunately there were a lot of stories to be told here in Oklahoma regarding contamination and, and that sort of uh, those sort of environmental problems and. They just kept coming up, and I uh, did a number of those stories. Those stand out. Um, but, you know, and mostly it was just covering the issues of the day and trying to do it in the most responsible way and the way that informs our readers the most. And we had such a – and we still do – such a great reader base that, you know, would let me know when they thought I went a little this way or a little that way, but they were – they would also come back and compliment me, and they would say some uh, pretty rough things at times, but then they would come back the next week, you know, and say, actually, I really like that story, and I thought you did a really good job on this, and, you know, and sometimes even apologize or something like that about previous comments, and that was, I, I just love that dialogue that I, I had with readers, with listeners, and uh, previously viewers of this podcast, um, just a lot, just a lot of fun. Yeah, well, and it should be mentioned also that your departure also means the departure of your wife, Meg Winger. It does, who yes. in, in and of herself is a is a stellar reporter, um, someone I've had a chance to uh, work with closely at times um, during your time here. Our, our healthcare reporter, who I think brings um, you know brings her own unique ability to bring clarity to a complicated subject. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure you probably could, you guys could probably do a podcast of your own just at, the, the, at your <laughs> dinner table. Um, at night, I'm sure those conversations are, are, are pretty riveting, but um, but yeah. So an end of end of a short era, but an era nonetheless. And uh, you know, it seems like just uh, just yesterday that you you and Meg were here. Um, I can even remember. I think you came down. You know, I, I remember the first time we had met. Um, I think I had a chance to show you around a little bit. I think you were also given a, a tour by Steve Lackmire, which I think people pay for, so you got that for free. <laughs> um, but uh, um, but yes, a, a a lot of a lot of important work, um, and you you're going to be you know sorely missed. Um, but uh, but congrats on the new gig. I know you'll do a great job, and uh, um, I look forward to being more plugged in with Colorado politics. <laughs> Thank you. Continue to Thank follow you. it. Well, I don't know on that note if we should if there's anything else left to talk about. Really, we were going to uh, debrief a little bit of the councilman's <laughs> conversation. You yeah. had a, a story, um, which will be last week for when this drops on the um, on the Ward Six Council race mm-hmm. to fill the open seat left by Meg Sawyer. I will have had a story when this podcast drops on the Ward Two race to to fill Shadid's open seat. Um, so a lot of good city council coverage. Uh, coming your way um, and once again this week was the start of the official legislative session at least this week meaning that when this episode drops mm-hmm. um, so check with newsok.com and probably this podcast feed because I think we'll have some stuff in there but you won't be with us so um, this is uh, this is it uh, Justin uh, good luck bud we're gonna miss you um, and uh, you know the show and the paper will be uh, is better for having you here and but we'll definitely be different with you with you leaving so well thank you and uh, it was uh, it 
You know, a good final guess, the never boring Ed Shadid there, uh, not one to bite his tongue, let's say. Yeah, yeah well, and it's, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see there his, you know, who replaces him specifically, but just the kind of voices, we, you know, we have these, you know, these few few seats that are up for grabs, a couple open seats. There's going to yeah. be some new voices on the council. Oh, and we just got Nikki Nice. Uh, the council yeah. just got Nikki Nice. Yeah. And there's and so, a, new naf- a new face there. Yeah. And so I think... Um, like I said, I, I, I think it's it's accurate to say that Shadid was, brain, was, you know, from day one, talking about a lot of issues that now are kind of more mainstream. And, and whether or not you want to give him credit for it or just say that he was reflective of kind of the, the changing demographics of the city or, or you know, the changing, the changing attentions of the city. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, whether you're you're a fan or a critic of Shadid, he definitely had an impact in the council. Um, and, and squeezed a lot into his eight years. Um, so, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find each and every episode in your favorite podcasting feed or app. Uh, you can also find us on the Oklahomans YouTube page. With Justin, I'm Ben. We'll see you again next week.